Chapter thirty five, part one of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Day. Deerbrook by Harriet Martin. Chapter thirty five, part one. Boating. Mr. Walcott was delighted with the invitation to the water party but he was fully engaged for the next three weeks. Mr. Gray decreed that he was to be waited for. Then the Lady Moon had to be waited for another ten days, so that it was past the middle of August before Mrs. Gray and Sophia were called upon to endure Mr. Walcott's society for six hours. The weather was somewhat dubious when the day arrived, but in so bad a season as the present, it would never do to let a doubt put a stop to an excursion which had been planned above a month. One of Mr. Gray's men was sent round among the ladies in the morning to request to be the bearers of their cloaks, as it was thought they would be cold on the water without all the wraps they had. Hester sent as many warm things as she could, as she thought Margaret could possibly wear. She was not going herself. She wished it much, but it was decided on all hands that it would be imprudent, as there was no calculating the amount of fatigue which each might have to endure. At three o'clock the party assembled on the wharf, on Mrs. Gray and Rowland's premises, every one having dined at home. Mrs. Rowland had tried to persuade Mr. Walcott that he ought not to be out of the way, after what Lady Hunter had said in a note about her terrible headache of yesterday. It might be the beginning of a feverish attack, and it would be unfortunate if he should be six miles down the river, not expected home until nine or ten at night, when a messenger should arrive from the hall. But Mr. Walcott had seen few water-parties in the course of his life, and he was resolved to go. Margaret and her brother repaired in gay spirits to the waterside. In the days of poverty, trifles become great events, and ease is luxury. Hope felt himself clear of the world to-day. He had received the money from the sale of his horse, and after paying for its corn, there was fifteen pounds left to be put by for his rent. Hester had bidden adieu to the horse with a sort of glee, as she had never been able to overcome her panic during her husband's long country rides and Hope found that he hung more and more upon Hester's smiles. They cheered him from whatever cause they arose. Margaret was gay from discourse with Philip. She had just dispatched a letter to him, a letter which had acknowledged that it was, indeed, long since they had met, that it was almost time that he was coming to Deerbrook again. The party they joined looked less merry than themselves, the two boats which lay at the wharf were gay enough, one with crimson cushions and the other with blue. A servant-maid was to go in each to take care of the provisions and provide tea at the ruins. And Alice and her companion were alert and smiling, but Mrs. Gray wore a countenance of extraordinary anxiety, and the twitching of her face showed that something had gone very seriously wrong. Sophia nearly turned her back on Mr. Walcott, who continued to address her with patient diligence. Maria was sitting on some deals, waiting to be called to enter the boat. 
and some of the people of the village were staring at her from a little distance. Margaret immediately joined her. What are those people looking at you for? I cannot conceive. I fancied that while I was sitting I looked pretty much like other people. To be sure you do. I will ask Mr. Gray. I am sure there is some meaning in their gaze so ridiculously compassionate. Do you not know, said Mr. Gray, do you not know the story that they have got up about Miss Young's case? They say Mr. Hope set her limb so badly that he had to break it again twice. I have been asked several times whether he did not get me to help, and they will not believe me when I deny the whole. Maria laughed, and Mar Margaret observed that they would presently see how much better Maria could walk now than she did before her last accident such being the effect of the long and complete rest which had been enforced upon her. "'Nothing like seeing for themselves,' observed Mr. Gray, surveying the company. "'All come but Dr. Levitt now, I think. "'It really goes to my heart not to take some of my partner's children. "'There they are, peeping at us, one behind another from that gate. "'There is room for two or three, from the James's failings thus at the last.' The little things might as well go, but I suppose there would be no use in saying anything about it. I must have a word with my daughter before we embark. Sophia! My dear! Sophia! Sophia came, and Margaret overheard her father say to her that every person present was his guest, and to be treated with the civility and attention due to him as such. Sophia looked rather sulky at hearing this, and walked far away from Mr. Walcott to devote herself to Miss Anderson. By dint of sending a messenger to Dr. Levitt's a quarter of an hour before the time, his presence was secured a quarter of an hour after it. He made his usual approach, looking bland and gentlemanly, and fearing he was late. The party were ordered into the boats, as if they had been going into dinner. Mr. Walcott was appointed to hand Margaret in, but he showed, amidst great simplicity, an entire determination to be Sophia's companion. Hope was approaching Maria's seat to give her his arm, when some bustle was heard at the gate, where the little Rowlands were clustered. "'Here is my partner. He will go with us after all,' said Mr. Gray. "'Come, my dear sir, we have plenty of room.' "'So much the better for my brother-in-law. You have room for Enderby, have you?' "'He will be delighted to join you, I have no doubt.' "'Room for me, too?' I really think I must indulge myself, yes. Enderby took us quite by surprise this morning, but that is his way, you know. Philip here, and without notice. Margaret thought she was dreaming the words she heard. She felt much oppressed, as if there must be something wrong in so sudden and strange a proceeding. At the very moment of suspense, she caught Mrs. Gray's eyes fixed upon her with the saddest expression she thought she had ever seen. Philip was come, it was no dream. He was presently in the midst of the party, making his compliments, compliments paid to Margaret in all a manner scarcely different in the eyes of others from those which were shared by all. But to her a world of wonder and of horror was revealed by the glance of an eye and the quiver of a lip, too slight to be detected by any eye less intently fixed than hers. Margaret stood alone as the others were stepping into the boats, but Philip did not approach her. 
he interfered between Hope and Maria Young. Maria looked agitated and uncertain, but she thought she had no right to cause any delay or difficulty, and she took his arm. Though she felt herself unable to conceal her trembling, Margaret saw that Hope was scarcely able to support herself. "'I cannot go,' she said, as he drew her, her arm within his. "'Leave me behind. They will not miss me. Nobody will miss me.' The agonised tone of these last words brought back the colour which Hope had lost in the tempest of emotions, in which anger was uppermost. He was no longer deadly pale when he said, "'Impossible. I cannot leave you. You must not stay behind.' It is of the utmost consequence that you should go. Cannot you? Do try. I will place you beside Mrs. Gray. Cannot you make the effort? She did make the effort. With desperate steadiness, she stepped into the boat, where Mrs. Gray was seated. She was conscious that Philip watched to see what she would do, and then seated Maria and himself in the other boat. Hope followed Margaret. If he had been in the same boat with Enderby, the temptation to throw him overboard would have been too strong. Till they were past the weir and the lock, and all the erections belonging to the village, and to the great firm which dignified it, the boats were rowed. Conversation went on. The grey church steeple was pronounced picturesque as it rose above the trees, and the children looked up at Dr. Levitt as if the credit of it by some means belonged to him, the rector. Sidney desired his younger sisters not to trail their hands through the water, as it retarded the passage of the boat. The precise distance of the ruins from Deerbrook Ferry was argued, and Dr. Levitt gave some curious traditions about the old abbey they were going to see. Then towing took the place of rowing, and the party became very quiet. The boat cut steadily through the still waters, the slight ripple at the bows, being the only sound which marked its progress. Dr. Levitt pointed with his stick to the verdurous wall which sprang up from the brink of the river. Every spray of the beech, every pyramid of the larch, every leaf of the oak, and the tall column of the occasional poplar, reflected true as the magical nature of light and waters could make them. Some then wished the sun would come out, without which it could scarcely be called seeing the woods. Others tried to recognise the person who stood fishing under the great ash, and it took a minute or two to settle whether it was a man or a boy, and two minutes more to decide that it belonged to nobody at Deerbrook. Margaret almost wondered that Edward could talk on about these things as much as he did, much in his common tone and manner. But for his ease and steadiness in small talk, she should suppose that he was striving to have her left unnoticed, to look down into the water as strenuously as she pleased. She little knew what a training he had had in wearing his usual manner, while his heart was, was wretched. "'There now,' cried Fanny, "'we have passed the place, the place where Cousin Margaret fell in last winter. We wanted to have gone directly over it.' Margaret looked up and saw Sidney's awestruck glance. He had not yet recovered from that day. "'If you have mentioned it sooner,' said Margaret, "'I could have shown you the very place. We did pass directly over it.' "'Oh, why did you not tell us? You should have told us.' 
Dr. Levitt smiled as he remarked that he thought Miss Ibbotson was less likely to be the last person to point out that spot to other people, as well as to forget it herself. Margaret had indeed been far from forgetting it. She had looked down into its depths, and had bought thence something that had been useful to her, something on which she was meditating when Fanny spoke. She had been saved, and doubtless for a purpose. If it was only to suffer for her own part, and to find no rest and peace, but in devoting herself to others, this was a high purpose. Maria could live, and was thankful to live, without home or family or prospect. But it was not certain that this was all that was to be done and enjoyed in life. Something dreadful had happened, but Philip loved her. He still loved her, for nothing but agonised love could have inspired the glance which yet thrilled through her. There was some mistake some fearful mistake, and the want of confidence in her which it revealed, the fault of temper in him, opened a long perspective of misery. But yet he loved her, and all was not over. At times she felt certain that Mr. Rowland was at the bottom of this new injury, but it was inconceivable that Philip should be deluded by her, after his warnings and his jealous fears, lest his Margaret should give heed give heed to any of his sister's misrepresentations. No light shone upon the question, from the cloudy sky above or the clear waters beneath, but both yielded comfort through that gentle law by which things eminently real, providence, the mercy of death, and the blessing of godlike life, are presented or prophesied to the spirit by the shadows amidst which we live. When Margaret spoke, there was a calmness in her voice, so like an echo of comfort in her heart, that it almost made Edward start. The party in the other boat were noisier, whether or not they were happier than those in whose wake they followed. Mr. Walcott had begun to be inspired as soon as the oars had made their first splash, and was now reciting to Sophia some lines to the setting sun, which he had learned when a little boy and had never forgotten. He asked her whether it was not a sweet idea, that of the declining sun being like a good man going to his rest, to rise again to-morrow morning. Sophia was fond of poetry, that was not too difficult, and she found little disinclination in herself now to observe her father's directions about being civil to Mr. Walcott. The gentleman perceived that he had won some advantage, and he persevered. He next spoke of the amiable poet Cowper, and was delighted to find that Miss Grey was acquainted with some of his writings, that she had at one time been able to repeat his piece on a poplar field, and whose sweet lines beginning, The rose has never been washed, just washed in a shower, that she had never heard the passage about the twanging horn o'er yonder bridge, and the wheeling the sofa round, and the cups that cheer but not inebriate. So Mr. Walcott repeated them, not as before in a high key, and with his face turned up towards the sun, but almost in a whisper, and inclining towards her ear, Sophia sighed, and thought it very beautiful, and was sorry for people who were not fond of poetry. A pause of excited feeling followed, 
during which they found that the gentlemen were questioning a boatman who was waiting his turn to tap to tow about the swans in the river. The swans have much increased in number this year, surely. Those are all of one family, I suppose, those about the island, observed Mr. Gray. Yes, sir, they can't abide neighbours. They won't suffer a nest within a mile. They fight it out if they approach too near, eh? said Enderby. Yes, sir, they leave another for dead. I have lost some of the finest swans under my charge in that way. Do you not part them when they fight? asked Walcott. I would. I always part little boys whom I see fighting in the streets, and tell them they should not quarrel. You would repent meddling with the swans, sir, if you tried. When I knew no better, I meddled once, and thought I should hardly get away alive. One of the creatures flapped my arm so hard that I thought more than once that it was broken. I would advise you, sir, never to go near swans when they are angry. You will find ample employment for your peacemaking talents among the Deerbrook people, Mr. Walcott, said Philip. They may break your windows and perhaps your heart, but they will leave your eyes and your right arm. For my part, I do not know, but I had rather do battle with the swans. Better not, sir, said the boatman. I would advise you never to go near swans when they are angry. Look, said Sophia anxiously, is not this one angry? Yes, it is, I'm sure it is. Did you ever see anything like its feathers? And it's coming this way. It's just upon us. Oh, Mr. Walcott! Sophia threw herself over to the other side of the boat, and Mr. Walcott started up, looking very pale. Sit down, cried Mr. Gray, in his loudest voice. Mr. Walcott sat down as if shot, and Sophia crept back to her place, with an anxious glance at the retreating bird. Of course, the two young people were plentifully lectured about shifting their places in the boat without leave, and were asked the question, more easily put than answered, how they should have felt if they had been the means of precipitating the whole party into the water. Then there was a calling out from the other boat to know what was the matter and an explanation, so that Sophia and Mr. Walcott had to take refuge in mutual sympathy from universal censure. The birds always quarrel with the boats, boats of this make, explained the boatman, because their enemies go out in skiffs to take them. They let a lighter pass without taking any notice, while they always scour the water near a skiff but I never heard of their flying at a pleasure party in any sort of boat. "'Where are the black swans that a sea captain brought to Lady Hunter?' asked Philip. "'I see nothing of them.' The male died, choked, sir, with a crust of bread a stranger gave him. But for that he would now be in sight, I don't doubt, for he prospered very well till that day. "'Of a crust of bread? What a death!' exclaimed Philip. "'And the other?' She died, sir, by the visitation of God, replied the boatman solemnly. It was obviously so far from the man's intention that any one should laugh, that nobody did laugh. Maria observed to her next neighbour that to a keeper of swans his birds were more companionable and quite as important as their human charge to coroners and jurymen. The boat got aground among the flags at a point where the tow-rope had to be carried over a footbridge at some little distance inland. One of the men, in attempting 
to leap the ditch had fallen in and emerged dripping with mud ben jumped ashore to take his little turn at the rope and enderby pushed the boat off again with an oar with some little effort mr walcot had squeezed sophia's parasol so hard during the crisis as to break its ivory ring the accident mortifying as it was to him did not prevent his exclaiming in a fervour of gratitude when the vibration of the boat was over and they were once more afloat what an exceedingly clever man mr enderby is extremely clever i really think he can do everything ah he would not have managed to break the ring of your parasol as i have been so awkward as to do but i will see about getting it mended to-morrow if i were as clever as mr enderby now i might be able to mend it myself you will not be able to get another ring in deerbrook but never mind i beg you will not feel uncomfortable about it i can fasten it with a loop of green ribbon and a button till the next time i go to blickley pray do not feel uncomfortable how can i help it you say there is no ring in deerbrook not any sort of ring my dear miss grey if i cannot repair this sort of ring sophia was a good deal flurried she begged he would think no more of the parasol it was no manner of consequence do not be too good to me he whispered i trust i know my duty better than to take you at your word from my earliest years my parents have instilled upon me the duty of making reparation for the injuries we cause to others sophia gave him an affecting look of approbation and asked with much interest where his parents lived and how many brothers and sisters he had and assured him at last that she saw he belonged to a charming family it does not become me to speak proudly of such near relations said he and one who has so lately left the parental roof is perhaps scarcely to be trusted as to be impartial but i will say that my family that though but not perhaps so clever as mr rowland and mr enderby oh for heaven's sake do not name them together mr walcot saw he had broken the charm he hastened to repair the mischief which one unhappy name had caused it is natural i know that you should take the most interest in that member of the family who is to be your relation you consider him in that light i believe of course he is to be our cousin the parties wish it to be kept a secret i conclude said he glancing at enderby and then stretching back as far as he thought safe to look at the other boat oh dear no there is no secret about the matter i should not have supposed them to be engaged by their manner to each other perhaps it, it is off said he quickly fixing his eyes upon her off what an odd idea who ever thought of such a thing such things have been heard of as engagements going off you know both had raised their voices during the last few eager sentences sophia became aware that they had been overheard by seeing the deep flush which overspread miss young's pale face philip mr looked at mr walcot as if he would have knocked him down if they had only been on land the young man took off his hat and ran his fingers through his white hair for the sake of something to do replaced his hat and shook his head manfully as if to settle his heart in his breast as well as his beaver on his crown he glanced down the river 
in hopes that the abbey was not yet too near. It was important to him the wrath of so extremely clever a man as Mr. Enderby should have subsided before the party went on shore. It would have been a strange thing to have known how many of that company were dreading to reach the object of their excursion. A thrill passed through many hearts when the ruins, with their overshadowing ivy, were at length discerned, seated in the meadow to which the boat seemed to be approaching far too rapidly. In the bustle of landing, however, it was easy for those who wished to avoid one another to do so. Most of the guests walked straight up to the abbey walls, so to examine all that was left of them. Mrs. Gray and her maids went to the little farmhouse, which was at one corner of the old building, and chiefly constructed out of its ruins. And while the parties on whom the cares of hospitality devolved were consulting with the farmer's wife about preparations for tea, any stray guest might search for wood plants in the skirts of the copse on the hill behind, or talk with the children who were jumping in and out of an old saw-pit in the wood, or if contemplative might watch the minnows in the brook, which was here running parallel with the river. Mrs. Gray obviously considered that Margaret was her peculiar charge. She spoke little to her, but when Philip was off somewhere, she took her arm, and seemed to insist on her company, when she proceeded to her treaty with the dame of the farm. Margaret stood for some time patiently, while they discussed whether it should be tea in the farmhouse parlour, which was too small, or tea in the meadow, which might be damp, or tea in the ruins, which where there might be draughts, and the water could not be supplied hot. Before this matter was settled, Margaret saw that her friend Maria was seated on a log beside the brook, and gazing wistfully at her, Margaret tried to disengage her arm from Mrs. Gray. Mrs. Gray objected. Wait a moment, my dear. I will not detain you five minutes. You must not go anywhere without me, my dear child. Never before had Mrs. Gray spoken to Margaret with tenderness like this. Margaret was resolved to know why. But she would first speak to Maria. She said she would return presently. She wished to return, but she must speak to Maria. Margaret, what is all this? said Maria in a voice whose agitation she could not control. Have I been doing wrong? Am I now thinking what is wrong? I did not know whether to be angry with him or not. I was afraid to speak to him, and afraid not to speak to him. How is it? Tell me, Margaret. I wish I could, said Margaret, in a tone calmer than her friend's. I am in a miserable dream. I wrote to him this morning. To London? Yes, to London. He must have been in Deerbrook while I was writing it. I have heard from him, as usual, three days ago, and since then I have never had a line or a word to prepare me for this. There is some dreadful mistake. The mistake is not his, I fear, said Maria, her eyes filling as she spoke. The mistake is yours, Margaret, and mine, and everybody's who took a selfish man of the world for a being with a heart and a conscience. You are wrong, Maria. You go too far. You will find that you are unjust. He is as wretched as I am. There is some mistake which may be explained, for he... He loves me, I am certain. 
but I wish I was anywhere but here. It is so wretched. I am afraid I have done wrong in speaking with him at all, said Maria. I longed for three words with you, for I did not know that I ought to do. We must learn something before we return. Your friends must act for you. Where is Mr. Hope? I do not know. Everybody deserts me, I think. I will not. It is little more than I can do, but stay by me. Do not leave me. We will watch for you. Margaret fell into the common error of the wretched when she said these last words. Her brother was at work on her behalf. Hope had gone towards the ruins with the rest of the party to keep his eye on Enderby. Sophia hung on his arm, which she had taken that she might relieve herself of some thoughts which she could not so well speak to any one of the strangers of the party. "'Oh, Mr. Hope!' cried she. "'How very much mistaken we have been in Mr. Walcott all this time. "'He is a most delightful young man, so refined and so domestic. "'Indeed, you will trust Sidney's judgment more readily another time.' "'Yes, indeed, but I could not help telling you. "'I know you will not be offended.' though some people perhaps would not venture to so to speak to you, but I know you will excuse it and not be offended. So far from being offended, I like what you say far better than the way I have heard you sometimes speak of Mr. Walcott. I have thought before that you did not allow him fair play. Now, in my turn, I must ask you not to be offended with me. Oh, I could never be offended with you. You are always so good and amiable. Mamma seemed a little vexed when you encouraged Sidney to praise Mr. Walcott, but she will be delighted at your opinion of him, when she finds how accomplished he is, and so refined. You speak of my opinion. I have no opinion about Mr. Walcott yet, because I do not know him. You must remember that, although Deerbrook has been busy about him since May, I have scarcely heard him say five words. I do not speak as having any opinion of him, one way or another. How dark this place looks to-day! That isle! How gloomy! I think it is the weather. There is no sun, and the ivy tosses about strangely. What do you think of the weather? I think we shall have the least possible benefit of the moon. How like a solid wall those clouds look, low down in the sky! Here comes Mr. Walcott. Suppose you let him take you after the rest of the party. You will not like the gloom of that isle where I am going. End of part one.